Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds cast. Today we're going to be rebroadcasting a lunch and learn the Rabbi Wilds did on Facebook Live. Uh, in honor of Holocaust Remembrance Day, today's topic is the U.S. response to the Holocaust. So without any further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. Last week's Torah reading, actually, Parshat Acharei Motz, it opens with a reference, uh, actually, in this coming week's Parsha, Acharei Motz, it opens with a reference to the tragic incident that was recorded in last week's Torah, the death of Aaron's two sons. And the Parsha records how Aaron's two sons were literally struck down by God before Aaron on this very joyous moment when the tabernacle was being dedicated. Uh, inaugurated, I should say, because they brought this strange fire. And I want to get into the whole thing, but the reaction of Aaron was actually very powerful. Because one of the primary lessons that we learned from that episode in the Torah is not just from what happened, but Aaron's reaction to the death uh, and, and the loss of his two beloved sons. What does the Torah say? The Pasuk says, Aaron was silent. And Rashi, quoting the Midrash, writes that Aaron was rewarded for his silence acceptance of God's decree. He was rewarded by having the Parsha of not drinking wine in the oil moed, in the tent of meeting, addressed to him and to him alone. And so our sages clearly see Aaron's silence in the face of tragedy as really meritorious. And when something, God forbid, happens, you know, I'm seeing this a lot, with unfortunately a lot of passing of older people during Corona, there's just a certain dignified, silent acceptance of, of, of the reality. What's to say? And, and, and that kind of um, silence is really considered, um, as I say, meritorious uh, and a virtue because it's, it's kind of a dignified acceptance of, of God's plan of the world, which is not an easy thing to do. But when, and when someone is able to be silent when something bad like that happens, it shows they have a lot of faith. But silence, we know, is not always the proper Jewish response to tragedy. And there are times when silence is not only not a virtue, uh, not a proper Jewish or Torah response to tragedy, but there are instances in history and in our own personal lives where silence as a response um, to something bad is criminal. And I think the best example of that is the Shoah, is the Holocaust. Because the world may perhaps never forget the six million who perished in the camps, and we, we, should, we will never forget them. But we also must also remember never to forget the hundreds of millions of people who watched and remained silent. The dozens of governments and heads of state who had the opportunity to intervene, but would not sacrifice military, political, or in some cases, even economic support to save innocent Jewish lives. The quota system in the United States of America, which allowed only a handful of Jews into the United States, and which turned two boatloads of Jews back to Europe, where they ultimately perished. I've done a, I did a lot of work on this when I was in graduate school. Those two boats were called the Struma and the St. Louis. St. Louis docked in a U.S. harbor, and the United States would not let those Jews, those Jewish refugees in. The Struma didn't even make it back to Europe. 
it literally just came apart in mid-sea. And uh, it's really a stain on the history of this great country when you start to study and get a little deeper into what did the Roosevelt administration, Roosevelt was the president of the United States during the Second World War, what did Roosevelt and his cabinet know? What did the typical uh, congressmen, members of the House of Representatives, senators, what did leaders in the United States of America and other parts of the Western world know about what was happening to Jews? Now, they clearly didn't know as much as we know today when, God forbid, something happens like this, like we knew in Rwanda and other genocidal campaigns because we have social media now. You know, I remember when my kids were learning in Israel. Um, thank you, Adam. Uh, we're all doing well. I appreciate you joining us today. I remember my kids were in Israel and I'd find out, God forbid, there was a terrorist attack somewhere in Israel and I'd call my kids to make sure that they were okay and they were like, we didn't even hear of a terrorist attack. And they were in Israel, and I'm here in New York. So we didn't have social media back then. People didn't know what was going on. But as you will hear, they knew enough. When I was in graduate school, I studied in, um, the, in the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia, and one of my uh, professors gave us an assignment that we were supposed to analyze the diplomatic correspondence between a Secretary of State in the United States, any Secretary of State in the 20th century, I remember it was, um, the name of the course was, I think it was U.S. Foreign Policy 20th Century. So we were supposed to analyze the diplomatic correspondence between the Secretary of State in the United States, any Secretary of State in the 20th century, with his or her um, ambassadors overseas. And by the way, any good university library will have the documented correspondence of letters back and forth between the Secretary of State and their um, uh, ambassadors in all the different countries of the world where the United States has embassies. So what I did was I decided that I would analyze the diplomatic correspondence between Cordell Hull. Cordell Hull was the Secretary of State under Roosevelt during the Second World War, and his ambassador, George Wilson, who was stationed in Germany. And I counted 23 letters sent by the United States ambassador to Germany. Um, his name was George Wilson, and he was there in the late 1930s, in the very short period between April 1938 and Kristallnacht, which was in November 1938. And in, in that short period of time, there were letters written. I counted 23 letters, which is a lot of letters written in a pretty short period of time. And these letters were written by Ambassador Wilson to Cardell Hull. Again, Hull was the Secretary of State here in the United States in the Roosevelt administration during the Second World War. And those letters detailed the implementation of the various Nuremberg racial laws to the Jewish citizens of Germany. Now, what were the Nuremberg racial laws? They were laws that the new Nazi government, Hitler came into power in 1933, and from 1933 on, things got worse and worse for the Jews. And um, he's detailing the different laws that, terribly anti-Semitic laws, 
that were um, directed against Jewish citizens in Germany. And Wilson wrote about the application of laws which required Jews to give up their property to the government, about Jews who were forced out of their professions and businesses. Uh, I actually have a document, it's somewhere in that cabinet in this room. Uh, my brother found it in my grandfather who was from Germany, Max Schoenwalter, a blessed memory, I'm named for him and my son Ezra's named for him. And uh, he had a paint business, Schelken paint business that was in Germany. And he got a letter from the uh, Nazi government, and I don't know exactly what year this letter was sent to him, but it was the late 30s, with a big a swastika, and uh, telling my grandfather that his company had just been seized by the Nazi government, and they were liquidating basically all of his assets. This is what happened. Jews forced out of their businesses, out of their professions, and George Wilson, who was the ambassador to the United States, from Germany, is writing letters to his boss in, um, not the White House, but in Washington, his boss, the Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, detailing all the persecution, including Kristallnacht, which he himself witnessed, waiting to receive diplomatic instructions from his State Department superiors. How should the United States react to these racial laws being applied against the Jews living in Germany? My grandfather among them. Now, as part of an assignment in graduate school, I studied these letters and I attempted to analyze this correspondence. And I remember looking at all these letters and not seeing much of a response from Cardell Hall. And I, I went to my professor and I was like, is this going to count for my assignment? Because the assignment was to analyze the back and forth, what we call in Aramaic, the shakla vitaria, the back and forth, like in the Talmud, you have one rabbi says this, the other rabbi responds. That's what's it, what's it, what it's supposed to be. And I told my professor up at Columbia that there wasn't much correspondence or dialogue because out of the 23 or so letters written by Wilson, there were only two or three that I could find that were received in response. And those letters completely ignored the plight of German Jews and informed the ambassador, George Wilson, how to deal with American Jews who happened to be situated in Germany at the time. Right, because they felt they had at least a responsibility to Americans, Jewish people who happened to be visiting or in Germany for some reason, completely ignoring the plight of German Jewry. But these letters are very important because they're significant in terms of what was known by the State Department at that time. Uh, again, I'm analyzing the letters. If you go to any good university library in Columbia has an excellent collection um, you just look up um, U.S. foreign relations, 20th century, and you'll see rows and rows and rows of bound um, uh, books with the letters. Uh, the United States will not obviously release those letters uh, within a certain period of time of them being written because they're confidential. They're diplomatic pouches, if you will, from Secretary of State to their ambassadors. But 25 years after there's a security clearance, 25 years, I think, is the official amount of time that it's no longer, you know, an issue. And I'm sure they don't release all the letters. Maybe there's certain things that the United States doesn't want other people to know. Who knows? But I want to go through some of the letters with you and then tell you a story uh, that is appropriate in regard to all this today on Yom HaShoah. On April 30th, 1938, I want to welcome, I see there's a beautiful group of people here, uh, Dan Feisikoff, Shoshana Hanekman, Michal, 
Demi Honigswacker, hey Debbie, Nathaniel Berman, um, Ariella Steinberg, uh, Fight Again, Joey Teicher, Sammy Rubin from England. No, I think you're in Israel now, Sammy. Pleasure to have you join us, everyone else. So on April 30th, 1938, in a telegram to Secretary of State, to Secretary of State Hall, Wilson relates the contents of a decree issued by the German government on April 26th, 1938. I'm being very specific because I think specificity makes all of these things come alive. This decree that Wilson is telling Cordell Hull about requires all Jews in Germany to, quote, declare and give the value of their entire domestic and foreign fortune, and that the commissioner of this project in Germany is authorized to use these fortunes, quote, in harmony with the requirements of German economy, which is just basically another way of saying that we, it's okay for us to loot and, and steal from, from people that we see pleased. In a, in a letter an, uh, two weeks later, to, again to Cordell Hull, Wilson reports on another decree which, quote, provided that all persons domiciled in Germany, including foreigners, must notify to the Reich Bank their liquid holdings abroad and on demand dispose of such holdings to the Reich Bank, basically just demanding that Jews give up all of their money to the bank, to the, to the Bank of Germany. In subsequent communications, Wilson then reported on decrees which required that, quote, Jewish industrial undertakings must be registered. And he also wrote a letter where he described large-scale series of arrests of Jews in Berlin. This is before there were concentration camps. This is before the official start of the Holocaust, I'm talking about in 1938 now. And the, the, um, the letter also told of an order by the Minister of Economics, quote, forbidding Jewish traders further access to German stock exchanges and commodity markets. Wilson noted another Reich law on July 8th, 1938, which forbade Jewish, forbade Jewish people or Jewish firms from occupying a whole list of occupations and gave the authorities the right to forbid Jews from entering bathing beaches and sunbaths. There was another political report, Wilson related the news of another decree which compelled Jews to bear Jewish names. Listen to this, and I have the quote from the letter. The law held, quote, in cases where Jews do not bear those given names designated as Jewish by the Minister of the Interior, they'll be forced to adopt by January 1, 1938, the given name of Israel in the case of a man or Sarah in the case of a woman. In October 1938, Wilson relayed two more decrees which, quote, invalidated the license to practice law held by Jewish attorneys in the Old Reich in Austria as of November 30th and December 31, 1938, respectively. So now Jews can no longer be lawyers. Other edicts reported by Wilson to Washington included decrees that Germans abroad lose their German nationality and therefore become ineligible to return to Germany. This is an effort by Germany to prevent Jews from coming back. And finally, following the tragic night of Kristallnacht, those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, Kristallnacht, which took place in uh, November of 1938, the night of broken glass, that's when most Holocaust scholars believe was the official beginning of the Holocaust. Um, Wilson was there at Kristallnacht. I actually, my grandma Blanca, um, not my grandmother, actually my sister-in-law Amy, her grandma Blanca, blessed memory, she was an amazing woman from Germany. She was there at Kristallnacht. And Wilson wrote to the Secretary of State, 
quote, of the systematic breaking of Jewish-owned shop windows throughout the Reich. And he used the word systematic. Why? Because it was a well-organized event and that it had to have been carefully planned because Germany claimed it was a spontaneous kind of response to something that some Jew had done in some other country. And um, it was systematic. It was planned. It was a pogrom. It was a modern-day pogrom in Germany. And this particular government, the United States, and Cordell Hull specifically, who did not respond to any of these things, uh, he did not give George Wilson any response as to what to do, what to say. As I said, the only letters that he wrote back, two or three letters, detailing how to deal with American Jews who happened to be abroad visiting Germany at the time. And the government's failure to act was obviously very disappointing, deplorable really, but perhaps even more disturbing was the lack of reaction by members even of the, our own Jewish community. There were Jews in positions of authority and leadership in America who failed to act. Now, it would be unfair to compare our situation in America today to the way our situation was in the United States in the 1930s. Uh, there was no APAC. There was no Soviet jury movement that I was involved in when I was a high school kid and in college and in graduate school, which really emboldened the American Jewish community. It made us feel secure to stand up for our rights for Jews in another country and to press the United States government to lobby Congress to do things. I worked for my congressman, Yishlim Well, He's a great man, Gary Ackerman from Forest Hills, Queens. I went to work for him for six weeks when I was in graduate school to help Soviet Jews, Russian Jews that were living behind the Iron Curtain get out. I worked for my senator, Senator Patrick Moynihan of Blessed Memory, who was an extraordinary scholar and a lover of Zion, um, great Irish Catholic, but not clearly not Jewish, but, but he, he, he advocated on behalf of Jewish rights for Jews in the former Soviet Union, and I worked for him as well. So it would be unfair, like we didn't have that kind of situation but there were Jews in power at the same time. There were a number of Jewish members of Congress and in Roosevelt's own cabinet who refrained from using their influence and their authority. And they did so for a very simple reason. They were concerned that there would be more anti-Semitism here in the United States if they spoke out too loudly about their brethren in Germany or in Europe. And by the way, it's true. And when I talk to my dad, we talk to other people who remember living in the United States in the 1940s, there was anti-Semitism in America, even in New York City. You know, every time to this day, my father sees me wearing my kippah, walking around the street, he gets a little like, you know, he was always wearing a cap because nobody walked around with a yarmulke in those days. You get beaten up in New York. So the idea of like speaking out was not as simple as it is today. There, were a lot of, there was a lot of xenophobia, there was a lot of isolationism in the United States, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism. David Wyman, in his famous book, The Abandonment of the Jews, that was one of the uh, books that I read and researched for this paper, describes how one of Roosevelt's primary Jewish advisors stopped Morgenthau. Morgenthau was the Secretary of the Treasury, Morgenthau was, was going to the president 
with a plan to begin a rescue policy for Europe's Jews. And uh, David Wyman, who documented every single detail of what was going on in the United States, what we knew, what we didn't know, stopped. He, he describes how a Jewish advisor to Roosevelt stopped Morgenthau, stopped the president's secretary of treasury from presenting to the president a, a rescue plan for Europe's Jews. And it was clear why he did this, because he didn't want Jews in America to be put more in jeopardy in terms of anti-Semitism. And obviously that um, is something we look back at and are clearly disappointed by because, I mean, it, it, you know, we, we, we can't ever judge because, again, our situation is so radically different. But, but given what was going on, how severe. Now, there were rallies in America, the Madison Square Garden, there was a famous rally in Madison Square Garden, and there were rabbis and there were other Stephen Wise and the like that were, were making noise. But the amount of noise and pressure placed on the U.S. administration was nowhere near what was necessary to move America to, to do something to stop the anti-Semitism much, much worse anti-Semitism, the racial Nuremberg laws, and ultimately concentration camps, and so on and so forth. Um, I would say that the most disturbing picture that I've seen, one of the most disturbing pictures in Yad Vashem, in Israel's National Museum of the Holocaust, of course, there are all the pictures of the emaciated Jews, our brothers and sisters, in the camps. But there's this one picture in the very beginning of the exhibit, <clears throat> which is a picture of Auschwitz taken from, of the train tracks of Auschwitz, going to Auschwitz, taken from a, a U.S. aerial bomber. And to this day, scholars are still debating and discussing why didn't the United States bomb the tracks? Why didn't they just stop or slow down the killing machine of Auschwitz? by bombing the tracks and, and making it more difficult for the Nazis to transport Jews from the ghettos to the camps. And there are all sorts of theories that are advanced. But they were given strict orders not to bomb the camps, even though there were American U.S. pilots, and God bless them because they were the ones who defeated the Nazis. Um, not to bomb the camps, uh, and they were bombing rubber plants and other military installations in the area? It's a very, very difficult question. There were over 30 countries represented in the already existing Intergovernmental Committee on Refugees. And not one country, not one country from 30 countries in the world that had been put together in some kind of um, committee volunteered even to expand its quota to allow in more Jewish refugees. At their meetings, they only contemplated one thing, and that was the feasibility of establishing a Jewish colony somewhere else in the world. Listen to the places in the world where they thought about, we'll create a place where Jews can go. Because the United States and England and all these Western countries would not expand their quotas to even allow Jews to come in. Because you have to remember that Jews were allowed to leave Germany. Jews were allowed to leave German-occupied areas in Europe for many, many years until probably late 30, late 38. Okay, my grandparents were able to get out because they somehow were able to come into the quota system, but it was tiny. 
I'll come back to that in a minute. They contemplated one thing, and that was the feasibility of establishing a Jewish colony somewhere else in the world. Southern Ethiopia, Kenya, Haiti, Madagascar, the Dominican Republic. These were all places, countries in the world that were suggested despite the almost unanimous consensus by the experts that resettlement of Eastern European Jews or German Jews into those countries was completely unrealistic. And so for the many years that Jews were permitted, and I would argue based on my research, that were even encouraged by the Third Reich to leave Germany and German-occupied territory, there was simply no place for them to go. There were so many Jews turned back that tried to get out, that couldn't get visas to this country and to other countries. And a lot, not, enough, not enough of us are familiar with this part of American history. And although it's difficult to talk about, and it's upsetting because we feel like America is our, is our home, we need to be aware of this. There was an article, I thought I brought it from my office just before, let me see. It's here. Oh, here it is. Okay. This came out in 1991. It's old. Take a look at this. You see where it says, this is the New York Times magazine, um, where it says here, My Dear Cousin Julius. And this particular publication, which um, is called My Dear Cousin Julius, Dear Cousin Max. And it featured recently discovered wartime correspondence between two Jewish cousins, one of which was, who was living in Germany and one who was living in the United States. The German cousin, Max Scholl, and uh, if anybody wants to see it, it's old, it's from 1991, but there are pictures and they, actually, they have the actual letters here. Um, let me see if I can get the... Very, very powerful. Oh, article by William Sapphire. Remember him. One second. I'm trying to find these. All right. All right. It's here. I'm trying to find this one picture. what pages is on. Just stay with me. Okay, it, it's not necessary, but here you have actually, it's a picture of the actual letter, the typed letter from this German Jewish man, Max Scholl, desperately trying to find safe haven for himself and for his family here in the United States. And he starts sending these letters that are here in the New York Times Magazine letter upon letter to his American cousin living in the United States, whose name is Julian Hess. And he pleads with his cousin Julian to send him an affidavit so he could emigrate with his family to the United States and escape Nazi persecution. Now, Max finds a very kind and sympathetic ear in his American cousin Julius. But Julius has to overcome a number of major hurdles that so many Jews encountered during those years the extraordinarily restrictive immigration quota system. Listen to these numbers. In 1938, the same year as Kristallnacht, the same year that the official beginning of the Holocaust started, 
There were 220,000 visa applications to America at consulates throughout Germany, which means that we know that there were 220,000 people that applied to leave Germany and come to the United States. You know what the quota for Germany for that year was? Immigration? I know all this stuff. I did immigration law before I started MGE. My dad's an immigration lawyer. My brother, our whole lives are about immigration, yada, yada. The quota for that year was 27,370. Meaning the United States said, according to the law, they will allow in 27,370 people from Germany. There were 220,000 applications. I assure you, they were all probably from Jews. And the 27,000 limit, even that number was not filled. In 1938, the United States issued only 18,000 visas issued that year. And so what did Julius do? He tried, like so many others, to bring his cousin Max into the United States outside of the quota system. How do you do that? You need a sponsor. How do you get a sponsor? You, we do this to this day. Somebody wants to come to America and get a certain kind of visa, they need to have a company which sponsor them or maybe a relative that can sponsor them. Julius was successful in securing his cousin Max back in Germany, a position as a chemistry professor in a local Charleston University. He was a chemist. And he wrote his senator urging him to consider his cousin in the non-quota class. Now, the American consulate in Germany denied Max's application for a visa on the grounds that he lacked the necessary two years teaching experience as a professor. Now, this was decided despite the fact that Max had a PhD in chemistry. He served as an assistant professor in a high school in Munich. He taught chemistry. He taught chemical technology in Switzerland for eight months and for 20 years had been a leader of laboratories in a chemical factory where he taught and supported many assistants. He was a chemist. He was completely qualified with a PhD in chemistry to teach in a local Charleston University. The consulate, the American consulate, nonetheless sent a denial to the university, which sponsored and offered him the teaching position. The university said, we'll take him, he sounds good. And the consulate wrote, and I quote, and I have it here, it will be necessary for him, referring to Max, to wait his turn on the waiting list until it will be reached, which may not be for several years. They said he's got to come in on the quota system. Max gets the bad news. He tries to emigrate with his family to England instead. Can't get out of Europe. Can't come to America. Let's try to go to England. But that's going to require money. He would need about 600 to 700 English pounds. Max was previously quite successful. Uh, um, and he was a chemist, and he used his chemistry to build up a large factory. He had 150 people working for him. He had offices in Milan, in Paris, in St. Paulo. But the Nazis had forced Jews by this time to give up their businesses. They had frozen their assets. Remember, I read that to you before. And so Max didn't have any money. He didn't have the money, the six to 700 pounds. It's a lot of money in those days. So he asked his American cousin, Julius, again, for 300 of the pounds. Now, Julius didn't have that kind of money in America. So he started approaching other family members, cousins who were wealthier, but they were reticent to help out. And in one of the letters that's, that's here in the New York Times Magazine, dated August 13th, 1939, Max, in his broken English, wrote to Julius. Listen to what he wrote. 
I cannot understand our cousins. When the things were opposite, I know we would do all in our powers to help in such great need. There are four human lives. He's talking about his wife and two children and him. There are four human lives of near relations which are in great danger, and they cannot feel with us. We are almost despairing. The long waiting has taken away our powers. I myself will and cannot believe that we are condemned to perish in that country. And this is the part that the, that the, that's on the front cover of the New York Times magazine. But I myself will and cannot believe that we are condemned to perish in that country. We are innocents to our bad fate, and we trust on our God and on you and on all good men that they will help us. I am waiting for good news of you, and thank you and your sister Norma of all my heart. I am devotedly your cousin Max. Now, while Julius, the guy, the cousin in America that Max wrote this letter to, was waiting for a reply to his letter to the National Refugee Service in New York City, asking how he could save, how he could send money to England, Germany invaded Poland. And on September 3, Britain declared war on Germany. Max then wrote Julius, informing him it would now be impossible to go to England. But he heard that maybe it was possible to emigrate to Chile. But this too would require funds, and this is what he wrote in his letter. Quote, it takes a lot of money, more than $400 for each of us. I come to you to beg you from all of my heart to help us to come to Chile. Max wrote that if Julius could not afford the $400 for each family member, that if he could save enough money for two, he would later try to get the other two family members out. He concluded his October 23, 1939 letter with the following words, quote, it is the last possibility to save our life. Max. Julius, back in the United States, started twisting a couple of arms. He collected the money from his reluctant cousins. A number of weeks later, in January of the year 1940, Julius receives a letter from the shipping company in Berlin, informing him that the Scholl family had still not left Germany, Max Scholl, because Chile had closed its borders in the meantime. And they were now being advised new immigration plans to Paraguay and Brazil. It's crazy. Max somehow made it out with his family from Germany. And when I read that, I breathed a huge sigh of relief. He got out to Yugoslavia. And in a postcard, Max tells Julius, his American cousin, how happy they were to have escaped Germany. Quote, today we are very content having saved our lives, and you, my dear cousin, have made the great thing, Max. But in February of the next year, 1941, Max's wife wrote Julius, and you could tell that she did not tell her husband, informing Julius of their dire financial situation and of her tremendous fear that the war was going to come to the Balkans, to Yugoslavia. I'm asking you from the bottom of my heart to arrange affidavits to America for us. I beg you, please don't let my children perish. I know that if my dear husband were in America, she writes, he would have already returned a portion of the money you have loaned us. And in the same month, Yugoslavia fell to the Nazis. And for the next four years, while the United States was at war with Germany, no letters reached Julius. The next letter did not come until June 1, 1945, 
a month after the Germans surrendered and the war was over. And that letter was written by Max's daughter. Because Max, at this point, was no longer alive. Two years earlier, as Max's daughter describes in the letter, her father, Max Scholl, was sent to Auschwitz, where the German secret police killed him after three months. One man. Sorry about that. One Jew was trying to find a safe place for himself and his family. It's incredible how one person could be turned down by so many governments and so many countries. The United States, England, Chile. And I chose to share this story with you because the number six million is just too massive for us to wrap our heads around. It's too big of a number for us to really fathom how so many people could lose their lives. We're such a small people to begin with. And so I chose to focus on one man, Max, because he represented so many others. And so when Hitler, Yamach Shemel, tried to compel Jews to leave Germany or German-occupied territories and no one else would take us in, when no country would even increase their quotas or even offer a temporary safe haven. You know, there were great people, great non-Jews, Gentiles, countless stories of Gentiles who risked their lives to save Jews in Poland. Our chazan, one of our chazan and my dear friend Arnie Singer always tells me about his parents who were hidden. His father was hidden in a haystack by a Polish family. And the Nazis would come and look for Jews. And if the Nazis found those Jews, they would have killed the Poles that were hiding Jews. And I don't want to discount that. Yad Vashem has a uh, special section for all of the righteous Gentiles, and we're all familiar with Oscar Schindler and how many thousands of Jews that were saved last night. The um, Panuski family, we uh, sponsored, uh, Alan and Alicia Pine sponsored the event in memory of Amanda's grandparents, Harry and Terry Panuski, able to survive because of Oscar Schindler. And there were many such stories. But unfortunately, there were others who remained silent, including this great country, this beacon of democracy and liberty, the United States of America, through its extraordinarily restrictive quota system, did not allow Jews in. My grandfather, my mother's father, Max Schoenwalter, thank God, was able to get into the United States, but it took a long time. He first emigrated um, to Liechtenstein. Jill and I actually traveled to Liechtenstein to see where they lived. My mother was born there. Tiny little country on the border of Switzerland. And they were finally able to come to America. <clears throat> and my grandfather, Max, when he came to the United States, he spent 
the first year just trying to get other German Jews, relatives and friends to come to the United States. He was successful with some, but very unsuccessful with others. England. What England did in its occupation of Palestine before the war during the British mandate, the white paper mandate, for those of you familiar with early Zionist history. And starting tomorrow, because we're going to go from the ashes of Auschwitz in commemorating the Holocaust today, and starting to get ready for Yom Atzmut next week, I'm going to be giving some history and philosophy about Israel. But we're going to speak about the British white paper mandate that prevented Jews from coming to Israel because the British didn't want more Jews coming in. And there were refugees from Europe that came in, that's, that were smuggled in, that were sent back. Some were imprisoned. Apologize, I'm getting calls and I didn't do my do not disturb on my phone, I apologize. And uh, I think it's important to remember, you know, my friend Sammy Rubin is, is uh, on, lives in England, uh, also lives in Israel. I think he's in Israel now watching this. And um, England's been great to Jews since. The United States has been great to Jews since. But it's, it hasn't always been that way. And there were periods of history when we're all, we weren't always proud to say we're American. This is one of those periods. And I think when we study the history of the Holocaust, we have to think about this and what are the implications, how important Israel is. Because no matter how broad and expansive and welcoming and hospitable, and there has been no other country, even given this, given this terrible dark stain on American history, there has been no other country which has been more hospitable and more gracious to the Jew, that has given us more liberty and freedom protected our rights than the United States of America. But this happened. And there could have been a lot of Jews who could have been saved from the Shoah had Britain allowed Jews into Israel, into Palestine at the time, and had the United States, how Roosevelt, Cardell Hall, had they allowed Jews to come here and relax the immigration quota system, which kept so many of our brothers and sisters out, where they ultimately perished in the Shoah. And so, I really think it's a question for us to ponder today. When I know that a lot of people ask, where was God during the Holocaust? And it's a legitimate question. There's a more fundamental and basic question that we have to first ask ourselves. And that is, where was man? Because there could have been a lot more done to save innocence. And this is a reoccurring theme in history. Before turning to God and saying, New God, where were you? And it's a legitimate question. And it's not one that I'm going to get into right now. Or one that I will profess. I have a very good answer to. I don't pretend to know the ways of our Creator. But as Jews, we first ask, What do we do with a bad situation? How can we react positively and proactively? We've been saying this throughout the whole coronavirus. What is our responsibility? What do we do? How can we save other people's lives? I've been announcing, I'll say it again, that if you have corona, 
and thank God you're fine now. I bumped into a dear friend, I don't think she'd want to be publicized, who had corona, and, and she tested negative afterwards, and I saw her, we bumped into each other on the street, we were both wearing our masks yesterday, and she told me she had just come from the hospital, and she waited for hours to be able to give blood plasma, because, right, and that's the proper Jewish response, to be able to help and to save and to be productive. And the proper Jewish response to what, what Hitler, Yamach Shemot, was trying to do to Jewish people would have been, how can we help? How can we expand our borders to receive more Jews? How can we place pressure on the German government to, to, what, to, to stop the anti-Semitism and the implementation of those, of those racial laws against the Jews? And if that wouldn't work, how can we get as many Jews out of Germany? And they can come here. Maybe it'll only be temporarily, but we need to do that. And the United States and countries of the world, we need to react when we see other people. right? And we have to be careful because not every situation is the same. A lot of people clamoring to come to America, some for very legitimate reasons. I wouldn't say for illegitimate, but there are different levels. When someone, we have political asylum, when I worked in immigration law, I had the opportunity to train in political asylum work. My father trained me how to write applications for people from other countries that had a well-founded fear of persecution in their own native country. That is a basis to gain admittance to the United States. And it's controversial when other people come here from other countries and want safe haven. There is a difference, in my opinion, between someone coming here who cannot physically survive in their country because they are, there's a genocidal campaign out for their life and someone who's coming here simply to prosper economically. And I'm not saying we shouldn't allow people to come here to prosper economically either, but they're not the same. And this is what was happening then and it still happens in the world today. And I think we have to learn from our history and we have to commemorate today on this day to think about the six million holy souls who lost their lives simply for being Jewish. And therefore they died, Al-Kiddush Hashem, they were killed in the sanctification of God's name. We must never forget them. And we must continue to do what we did last night, which is to talk to survivors. As long as we are blessed to have survivors amongst us, we must hear their eyewitness testimony, their tales, their stories, as difficult as it is, I really was so, I am so thankful to Dr. Moshe Avital. If you haven't seen it yet, go on today sometime and watch the interview, even if you can't watch the whole thing. He's just unbelievable. And he just wants to tell his story. We need to tell their stories. Because as Elie Wiesel talked about silence, and as I spoke about silence at the outset, there are times when being silent is meritorious. When we are silently accepting God's decree in the face of tragedy and there's just nothing we can do. But when God forbid there's an injustice and we need to speak out and silence becomes a crime. Shtika kahoda adami, the Talmud says, shtika, silence, is considered acquisition. Right? In the Talmud, if someone is making a deal with you and you just stand there and you don't say anything, your silence can be interpreted legally, halachically, as some kind of acceptance of what is transpiring. 
and something wrong happens. And by the way, this doesn't have to be an international incident of human of a violation of human rights. It could simply be going, something happening in your firm, in your company, with your friends, and something wrong is happening, and we remain silent. Al ta'amud al damriach, the Torah says, do not stand by idly by the blood of thy brother. In Torah law, it is not the same when we remain silent as a person who pulled the trigger, but it is a crime. It is a violation of a positive command, of a negative command of remaining silent, of standing idly by. The Jew doesn't stand idly by. And we have to teach the world to be vocal when it's appropriate to be vocal by doing that in our own personal lives when we are witness to injustice, when we are witness to something unethical or immoral in the workplace, in our personal lives, right? There are certain times we talk about being careful about what we say, about not saying anything, not saying Lashon Hara, not saying something ir irresponsible or, or you know, unflattering about someone else. We have to be careful, but there are exceptions. There are times when we must speak out. And so today, I think we do the survivors justice by not only remembering their passing, but by thinking about how we can honor their memory by being active and vocal when things like this happen in the world or in our own personal lives. And to think today about Max. And where would Max be now had his cousin Julius been successful in bringing him to America? How many grandchildren would Max have been able to play with and enjoy? How many more American Jews there would have been had all those German Jews applying for visas at American consulates in Germany in 1938? been granted visas to come to the United States. Countless, countless lives could have been saved. That's something we have to think about and remember today as we commemorate the six million. I'd like to uh, just conclude with your permission by lighting uh, six candles. I did this last night and I'd like to do it again. And by reciting the Kilmoli, special prayer in memory of the six million. Getting a prayer book. Hang on one second. Just take a moment while I find the page. 
חכמים שוכן במרמים. המנשא מנוחה נכונה על כנפי השכינה, ומעלוז קדושים מתורים כזוהר הקיום עשירים. אס נשמעות הקדושים והתורים. שומסו ושנהרגו ושנשחטו ושנשרפו ושנטבעו ושנחנקו על קידוש השם על ידי הצוררים הגרמנים יימח שמם וזכרם בעבור שלי נהדרת אין צדקה בעד השכרת נשמוסיהם וגן עדן תימון וחסם לכן בא לרחמים, יסתירם וסייסר כנפיו לעולמים, ויצרור בצרור החיים אס נשמוסיהם, אדוני הוא נחלסם, ויונוחו בשלום על משכבוסיהם, ונאמר המבבים. God full of mercy who dwells on high, grant proper rest on the wings of the divine presence, in the lofty levels of the holy and the pure. who shine like the glow of the firmament for the souls of all the holy and pure ones who were killed, murdered, slaughtered, burned, drowned, and strangled for the sanctification of the name through the hands of the German oppressors. May their name and memory be obliterated because without making a vow, I will contribute to charity in remembrance of their souls. May their resting place be in the Garden of Eden Therefore, may the Master of Mercy shelter them in the shelter of his wings for eternity, and may he bind their souls to the bond of life. Adonai is their heritage, and may their repose be in peace upon their resting places. Let us all respond. Amen. Thank you all for joining us and um, I want to end with a very important message of hope and optimism because as I said before out of the Auschwitz of the ashes of Auschwitz was born the state of Israel and just like in Israel they run so quickly we go in Israel and in the United States throughout the world one week of Yom HaShoah today, and next week, Yom HaTzma'ut. We're going to be learning about something more joyous and positive. And that is how we went literally from this moment. Jews who came, who survived the Holocaust, and came in under the British mandate, and were given a gun to fight in order to create the, the, the new state of Israel. We're going to start tomorrow, please God, with discussions about the history and about the theology and the philosophy and the creation of the modern state of Israel. A lot of great stuff to share um, and inspiration having to do with Israel as we lead up to next week. Uh, today, though, is the day to, to continue to remember the six million, but of course to remember that we came out of it. And uh, we live in very, very very special times. Thank you all for joining today.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.